Okay, so we are carrying on this morning then with our study that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's a four-part study. What we're really looking at, the four parts, the first week we looked at the supernatural origin of the Bible uh, and God's complete control of history, how God had foretold hundreds and even thousands of years beforehand details that would be fulfilled during this week we refer to as Passion Week, the week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. The second week we looked last week at the, the timings and details of Passion Week, how it all fits together, and there is still you know, controversy. Um, and a lot of the time it's because people take one verse or another and they try to build something from it. When we take the whole of the counsel of God, all of these things together, uh, actually it's, there are some complexities, but it's not that complicated, and everything just fits together beautifully. Uh, and of course, as we're told in Corinthians, Paul says that God is not the author of confusion. Confusion comes when man steps in and tries to uh, uh, explain things without God's word as the foundation. What we're going to look at this morning is the accuracy and the harmony of the Gospels. And I'll speak more about that in just a second. And then in two weeks' time, when we conclude uh, this study, we're going to look at the reality and the power of the resurrection. That's a phrase that Paul uses, the power of the resurrection. And we're going to ask the question, what does that mean and how does that apply to us? And there's some really wonderful things uh, that we've got uh, in that session uh, in two weeks' time. But again, for this morning, we're going to look at the, the harmony of the Gospels. Now, one thing I want to just say straight off is that some years ago, uh, I was part of a, a youth group. I mean, it was many years ago. I'm sure you can appreciate. Um, and and we, we'd done it. We, we'd gone on a house party weekend. And we were all sat there in a kind of a classroom kind of environment. And there must have been about 20, 25 of us young people together. And the youth leaders, one of them just came in and called the one that was going to lead in the session. They only just started the session, called them over and muttered something in their ear. And there was this kind of look of confusion and there was like, wait a minute. And they went outside the room and they came back and they were talking to each other. And none of us knew what was going on, but it seemed there was a problem. And then one of the youth leaders came back in and just said, uh, I'm really sorry, uh, but we've, we've got a, a problem here. Um, it appears that there's a, a minibus that's just turned up with some young people and they'd already booked the center um, before we had, and there's been a double booking, so I'm afraid we're going to have to pack up and go. Well, you can imagine us, I mean, particularly all the young men, we're like, oh, we're just going to sort them out, we're, we're here first, we're going to stay. And so there was all this kind of conversation and what we're going to do and why we should stay because we're here already and, and so on. And they left us for a few minutes to have our little conversations, and they said, right, stop. That's, that's not true, there's not a minibus outside. But I want you to split into four little groups, which you all did, and just write down an account of what just happened. Well, okay. So we did. So we got in our little groups. We all wrote an account of exactly what happened. And then they nominated one person from each of these four groups to go to the front and just explain what had happened. Every one of those four accounts was totally different. Totally different. They all said the same kind of thing, but all from different perspectives. And it was incredible how a group of people in the same room at the same time had witnessed the same thing and yet recorded different aspects of it. None of the events were, con- none of the things recorded were contradictory when you knew the whole. But on their own, they could have been taken that somebody made a comment about this, but the other group didn't. So does that mean he didn't know? It's just, you see, and what they went on to show us was looking at the Gospels, there is incredible harmony there. But we need to realize with the Gospels that we've got a fourfold presentation of events. And the gospel writers saw these events from their perspective, and they recorded things from their own perspective. And it's incredible that some miss bits out that others record. Matthew will record things that he obviously sees as being vitally important. John doesn't even mention it. And of course, this leads to people 
questioning the authority of Scripture. And we'll come to that in just a moment. But just to bring us up to speed, so far, what we've looked at is the fact that God is outside of time. He's revealed the future before it happens to serve as undeniable proof of his existence. Now, people can deny it, but not on the basis of evidence. It's purely uh, a preference. It's purely just a bias. There's no reason to reject God based upon the evidence. You see, in the Bible, God speaks through direct, specific prophecy and through types and shadows or anticipatory models that we have laid down for us. And as we've already said, the details of Passion Week were recorded, many of them, over a thousand years before they actually took place some we could even go back to the time of abraham which is 2000 years and the model with abraham and isaac and all of those things that we have but specifically we see through the feasts of israel the messianic psalms and through the old testament prophets all of those details laid down before the events actually took place and we looked last time in a bit more detail how that in daniel chapter 9 gabriel gives a prophecy of the very day that Jesus would come and present himself as the Messiah. Again, given 500 years before it even happened. And of course, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and allows himself to be worshipped as the Messiah. And as we said, it's the only day he actually allows it. And in fact, he actually intentionally arranges the whole event. The triumphal entry was on the 10th day of the month, which was the very day that according to Exodus chapter 12, and as the Laura had it for the Jews, they would be taking those sacrificial lambs. And those lambs, by the way, that they would take to sacrifice for Passover, came from the fields around Bethlehem. David, as a shepherd, wasn't just looking after any old sheep. The sheep that David would have cared for would have been those sacrificial lambs. Those lambs that had to be without spot and without blemish. Kind of puts a different perspective on that, doesn't it? But also, did you know that in Bethlehem, or just outside Bethlehem, there was a tower, Migdal Edar, the name of this place. It's referred to even way back in Genesis. But Micah, we know Micah prophesies and tells us that Bethlehem would be the place that the Messiah would be born. But he also tells us the very place. Tradition has obfuscated so much of what we talk about at Christmas time. But Micah actually points to this place as being where the Messiah would come to. Interestingly enough, when we look at what the angels tell the shepherds, all they say is that they are to go to Bethlehem because there's been a a baby and that they would find him in a manger. Uh, Bethlehem at that time was a town of possibly 8,000 plus people. I mean, that's not very specific or clear instructions, and yet the shepherds knew exactly where to go. Well, the reason for that was because this tower, at the base of it, there was a place that the shepherds used. The tower was used as a lookout tower that the shepherds would use to keep an eye on the surrounding areas to make sure nobody was coming to harm or steal the the flock. They could look and see any wolves or predators from a distance. But at the base of the tower, there was a place known as the manger. It was a place where these newborn babes that were to be destined for Sacrifice in the temple, which mustn't have any spot or blemish. When they were born, they'd be wrapped in swaddling bands and they would be laid in the manger. So when the shepherds are told to go to Bethlehem and that they would find a babe wrapped in swaddling bands and laid in the manger, they knew exactly what they were looking for. They went straight to this tower, which is just on the edge of Bethlehem. And I believe that when Joseph gets to Bethlehem and there is no room anywhere 
And as we're told, this supposed innkeeper, and it could have been even possibly a family home, it's not quite clear the details, but there's no mention in the Bible of a stable. There's nowhere for them to go. Where would Joseph go? He'd walk right past his place on the way into town. It was perfectly clean. It was kept ceremonially clean because of the lambs and the nature of these lambs that were kept there. And so they come to this place, and I believe this is where Jesus was born, in the very place that these lambs were born that would later be used for Passover, just as Jesus himself would be. So all of these things, it's wonderful how they all tie together. Now we've seen already that the feast of Passover, therefore, foreshadows Christ's sacrificial death. It was on the 14th day of the month of, of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. And Jesus, of course, was able to celebrate the Passover with his disciples and become the Passover lamb, dying on the 14th because of a little peculiarity in Exodus 12, verse 6. When Moses is recording these details, he uses a, a word in Hebrew, bayan, and says that the lamb must be killed between the evenings. Not in the evening, but between the evenings. So they actually have a 24-hour window in which to offer up this, this sacrifice. Now, of course, in Egypt, the lambs were killed in the evening before they then left. But when the law is, when it's recorded, this is what is told. And of course, Jesus was able to celebrate, as we saw last week, the Passover on what would have been the Wednesday evening with his disciples. As the, the, it got to 6 p.m., it becomes the new day in the Jewish calendar. It would become the 14th in their mindset. And so Jesus on the 14th on Passover could celebrate Passover as it's very clear that he did with his disciples. And the next day, still the 14th in the Jewish calendar, Jesus is also able to become our Passover. And Paul makes it very clear. He says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 that Christ became our Passover. We saw also that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is symbolic of his burial. Jesus' body was placed in the tomb as it became the 15th, as it got to sundown by the Jewish reckoning. Jesus said that unless a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Of course, speaking of himself and his own body and what will be accomplished. And then on the 17th of the month, it was the Feast of First Fruits in that year. Jesus rises, the first day of the week, Jesus rises from the dead. And again, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, that Jesus has become the first fruits of all them that slept. So that's what we've looked at so far. And we've again looked at this, many of the details. We're going to go on, as I say, and look at the, the harmony of these gospel accounts that we have. What I want to try and do is demonstrate the consistency of the gospel narratives and demonstrate again that the different information doesn't constitute different events. But it's interesting because you start to see a slightly different picture when you compare and look at these things together. I want to just try and give a, a coherent presentation again of the events, particularly of the resurrection morning, which we'll get to in a moment. Before we do that, I just want to read this to you. This is a quote from the, uh, the famous Mr. Richard Dawkins from The God Delusion. He said this, Nobody knows who the four evangelists were, but they almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. The Gospels are ancient fiction. That's what Dawkins says. Well, I just wanted to consider, because if Dawkins is correct, one might imagine the following conversation taking place. Just picture this, if you will. Luke says, let's have another round of drinks. I have an idea I want to run past you. John says, sure, what's on your mind? Luke replies, you probably heard about the Nazarene named Jesus who was crucified yesterday. 
I think he could be the perfect candidate for our fake Messiah project. Mark says, uh, one tiny problem there, guys, he's dead. Luke responds and says, uh, yeah, but that means we'll control the narrative. We'll be in charge of his reputation. Matthew says, well, who would follow a dead Messiah? And Luke says, nobody. So we'll begin with a resurrection myth. We'll hire some thugs to fight off the soldiers guarding his tomb so that we can get rid of the corpse. John says, but a missing corpse isn't the same as a resurrection. Luke says, you're right. So we'll have to persuade Jesus' friends to spend the next 30 years telling everyone he's risen from the dead, even if sticking to that story means they'll be imprisoned or killed. Mark says, okay, then what? Luke, well, to make a conspiracy credible, you need precise detail. So we'll invent stories where Jesus interacts with people in specific locations. Matthew says, won't people just disprove the stories by visiting those places and asking around? Luke says, there's no need to worry about that. We can invent a story about a synagogue's ruler's terminally ill daughter being healed. We could give the synagogue ruler a name and set it all in a particular place. And still no one, absolutely no one, not even the people living in that place, would trouble to fact-check. Everyone would simply swallow the story whole. Mark says, well, it sounds like we're on safe ground there. But if we want people to follow Jesus, he'll need a message. People have been waiting for the Messiah for centuries. He's got to be worth listening to when he finally appears. John says, good point. I'll cook up some deep quotes. Luke adds, yeah, thanks, John. Uh, Mark's right. You'll need to put profound wisdom on Jesus' lips that theological scholars can happily study for their entire careers. John says, not a problem. Luke says, guys, it will take us a while to put these documents together. We need to get communities of people worshipping Jesus in the meantime so that when our books come out, they'll get a good reception. Mark, uh, there's a guy I know called Saul. He can help with that. Luke responds and says, Saul the Pharisee? I can't imagine him getting involved with this kind of thing. Mark says, trust me, he's our man. I see him leaving behind everything he's been trained to do and planting congregations of Jesus worshippers throughout the Roman Empire. Whatever it costs him personally, beatings, shipwrecks and the like. Matthew says, awesome. Uh, but Luke, can you just remind me, what's the point of all this? I mean, what exactly do we get out of this? Luke says, come on, Matt, it'll be so much fun. We'll watch people being brutally martyred and we'll know that they've been deceived by our dishonest fiction. What's not to like about that? John says, I agree with Luke. This is definitely worth years of effort on our part. Count me in. Mark, me too. Matthew, well, I'll do it if my name comes first in all the promotional material. And Luke says, deal, let's get to work. Do you see how stupid Dawkins' quote really is? When you consider... The Gospels, when you consider what we have and the, how the, the church started, comments like Dawkins really are ridiculous. And it's been said many a time that many a critic's hammer has been broken on the anvil of God's word. There's no way you could fabricate this stuff. There's no way you could just bring it together. And that kind of story, that fictional story we just put together there, really hopefully just drives home how ridiculous it would be. Okay, so let's look at what the Bible does actually say. We're going to start... In the autumn winter of AD 31, up in Caesarea Philippi, up in northern Israel. Now, this would be the winter before the spring when Jesus was crucified. Jesus said unto them, to the disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 20, as we've seen already a number of times, then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. It wasn't the right time. 
but the disciples are starting to piece things together. Well then, we find a very interesting verse in verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again, notice here, the third day. I see Jesus making it very clear before these events took place what was going to happen. I mean, this is an incredible witness and testimony itself that Jesus, even before he got to Jerusalem, was prophesying that he would rise from the dead on the third day. But this is the turning point. This is when that journey to Jerusalem begins. If we look on a map, Caesarea Philippi, right at the top of the map, you can see that. And we'll see in a moment they go from there up to Mount Hermon, and then they'll travel back down to the area of Galilee. And then finally, for a very specific reason, they head down to Jerusalem, which we'll look at as we go through this. Now, after six days from what we've just been looking at, Matthew carries on and says, Jesus, taking Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringing them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Okay, this high mountain, again, we believe, because it's right next to where they were at Caesarea Philippi, would be Mount Hermon in northern Israel, the highest mountain region in the whole of the, the area in the Middle East and that part. And we're told in verse 30 that, Behold, there talked with him two men. Now Luke is recording this for us. Luke was a doctor. He knows what he's talking about. He says there were two men which appeared there, and he gives us the names of them. He says there were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Something was clearly different about them, visually. Seemingly they're shining. And, and notice this, and spoke of his decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The reason that God allows this incredibly bizarre event to take place was for something to do with Jesus' death. And we'll come back to that a little later, and you'll see how this all ties together. Well, they leave there, as we saw, and they come down towards Galilee, and while they're boating Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And notice again, we're told very clearly, and the third day he shall be raised again, and they were exceeding sorry. Okay, so the final scene now, the countdown has begun, as we've already seen. Jesus comes near to Jerusalem, and we're going to see for a very specific reason. But in doing this, it would cost him his life. And this is all given to us in the details that John records. And we're going to pick up in John's Gospel, chapter 11. Because Jesus had come to this area, to Jerusalem, or just outside Jerusalem, because Lazarus had died. Now, if you know, if you remember, Jesus had delayed his coming until Lazarus was actually dead. But Jesus eventually arrives at the scene, and they get to the graveside, and we pick up verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was lain. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I know that thou always, always hearest me, or hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. It's interesting, isn't it? We're just given that detail there about that napkin. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews, we've told you verse 45, which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. Notice this is many of the Jews believed in Jesus. This is creating a real stir. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. 
Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees the council and said, What do we? For this man does many miracles. I mean, this has just caps it all. Lazarus, well-known character, well-known figure in the area, has died. People are mourning. And suddenly he's brought back to life. Everybody's talking. And many Jews are now believing in Jesus. Well, this is going to lead us to the final, or this, I believe, this event is the final harvest before nightfall. Jesus spoke of a darkness coming in which no man can work. And I think that applies both to this particular time, but also to the time that is yet coming on earth. There is a time coming when no one will be saved. When we get into that time, the latter part of the tribulation, when God's wrath will be poured out on this earth. The Jewish leaders said, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans, and this is the real problem for them, the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And this is the issue, really. Because it could lead to an uprising against Rome. And what happens if it wasn't successful? Whether they're concerned that the Romans would come and take, take away both our place and our nation, our, our position, our authority that we have, and even destroy us as a nation. This is what the Jewish leaders really feared. Of course, they should have realized that that's exactly what the Messiah was going to do. Deliver them. Look at the prophecy that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah gives when John the Baptist is born. And he speaks of the Messiah being the one who would deliver them from their enemies. And yet one is standing there with the power to raise the dead and the Jewish leaders reject him. And one of them named Caiaphas being the high priest that same year said unto them, you know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. What a statement from an unbeliever. It's interesting the number of statements we have from unbelievers in scripture that give us truth. And this is a statement of truth because John carries on and says, and spake he not, sorry, this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that he, he prophesied. I don't think he intentionally prophesied, but he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one. The children of God were scattered abroad. John adds that a little bit in as John's looking back and realizing the import of Caiaphas's words. But notice then, going back to the, the Jewish leadership, then from that day forth they took counsel together to put him to death. You see, this raising of Lazarus was such a big thing. Jesus walked therefore no more openly among the Jews, but went, so went thence in, unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. So just a short distance away, Jesus now just re- retires from the scene. But notice that the decision is now made by the Jewish leaders. They want to put Jesus to death. It's all about timing. But because timing is also the key, Jesus removes himself from the scene. It's interesting though, isn't it? Just think about this for a moment, that ultimately that raising of Lazarus from the dead directly led to the crucifixion of Jesus. For Lazarus to be raised to new life, Jesus would have to die. And in that, there's a picture of each and every one of us. So we come now to a short time, a very short time after this event, and Jesus arrives in Bethany. And we read, Then six days before the Passover, we looked at the details of that last week, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And Bethany, by the way, becomes Jesus' residence during this week. And Mark gives us real details of the toing and froing between Bethany and Jerusalem. And again, notice that John just ties this together and tells us that, you know, this is where Lazarus was. And then clearly the next day we're told, on the next day, John gives us this, much people that were come to the feast, 
It's the Feast of Passover. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees. And of course we know the account of this leads to Palm Sunday. As Jesus comes in and pronounces blindness on Israel for their missing the day of their visitation. That day that had been prophesied by Daniel that we looked at in more detail last week. But then we find that when Jesus actually gets into Jerusalem, picking up in verse 10, all the city was moved saying, who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and brought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. They're also told that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that are done, that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. Matthew records this for us. And clearly this is the same day as the, the triumphal entry. Jesus has come in and seen these money changers and turns their tables over. And notice that we're clearly told that the chief priests saw They were there. They witnessed these events. Verse 17 of Matthew, And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and lodged there. So that's the end of the Sunday. He goes out into the evening to Bethany, and that's where he resides. Well then, the next day, Jesus heads back into Jerusalem. Now in the morning, this is Matthew's Gospel still, as he returned to the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently, Matthew tells us, the fig tree withered away. Mark actually tells us it was the next day. We'll see that. Because Mark says, On the morrow when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree, this is the same account as Matthew's given us. Seeing a fig tree far off having leaves, he came happily that he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet carrying on in Mark's gospel and they came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and notice this and began to cast out them that sold and brought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple now is Mark just giving us a little bit more detail or recording a second event well you have to conclude if you look at the details that Mark is recording a second event that it seems two days running, Jesus goes into the temple and does the same thing. And that marker of the fig tree actually gives us a very clear division between the, these two days. And he taught, saying unto them, It is written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. Same sentence, same thing. But this time, and the scribes and the chief priests heard it. And they sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. See, on the second occurrence, word gets to the chief priest. They hear of it, but they're not told they see it. Mark specifically says they see it. Matthew actually records the account that on the, the next day, there was some other commotion and the, the, the priests get to hear of it as well. So seemingly two days running, those events occur. We then get, in the evening, Jesus goes out to Bethany, lodges there. And we come to the Tuesday. The Tuesday is the day when, let's just read the the text. Now in the morning, this is Matthew's account again. As he returned to the city, he hungered, and when he saw a fig tree in the way, uh, he came to it and found nothing on, but leaves only. And said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. 
And when he was coming to the temple, the chief priests, the elders, the people came unto him as he was teaching. He said, by what authority does he now do these things? And who gave thee this authority? Well, that Tuesday, the rest of the Tuesday is when we get the account of what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. When Jesus speaks of all that is going to come on this earth. He speaks of the tribulation that's coming. He speaks about no stone of the temple remaining. Of course, we're referring to AD 70. But then takes it beyond that to speak about the end times. He speaks about the abomination of desolation, about Antichrist. Again, the evening they go out to Bethany again. And it's while they're in Bethany that they have this meal. And Mary pours this very, very costly perfume on Jesus' feet. Judas is outraged. And as a result of this, and all the gospel writers make some reference to this, Judas gets up and goes. And he goes to the high priest, seeking how he may betray Jesus. And of course, they're pleased to see him. They offer him 30 pieces of silver. I want you to realize it's just 24 hours from that point to the next night when the guards arrive to arrest Jesus. Just 24 hours is all it took from Judas going. They didn't want to do it during the time of the feast. But this opportunity is presented to them that they cannot turn down. The Wednesday becomes the day of preparation. As it would get to sundown, it becomes the 14th. It becomes the Feast of Passover. And certain work was permitted on the day of Passover itself. We're told very clearly from Deuteronomy and Exodus. But they, Jesus sends the disciples on ahead to go and prepare the room and they go and they find and they get the room ready and then in the evening they come and Jesus celebrates that Passover with his disciples. And then they go out in the evening after they've celebrated this Passover together, they go to Gethsemane and from Gethsemane onto the mount where the soldiers come back and they arrest Jesus. John gives us so much details, so much of John's latter part of the gospel from really from verse kind of chapter 13 all the way through to the end of 17. John just gives us almost a verse by verse narrative of of what was said and the things that happened, you know, the the washing of the feet, the going to Gethsemane, the promise that Jesus would send another comforter. All of those things are given to us. And ultimately then Jesus is arrested and we looked at that again in a bit more detail last week. And finally, we get to the day of the, the crucifixion when Jesus is led out to Calvary. Pilate, as we've already said, didn't want to crucify Jesus. He was starting to see already there was something very special about this man. But we come to the day of the crucifixion itself, the Thursday, the 14th, the day of the Feast of Passover. And of course, we read in Matthew 27, verse 50, that Jesus, when he had cried out, again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. You see, the Jews wanted Jesus dead because of this fear of political insurrection. They had no idea of all that was being fulfilled and accomplished. Jesus, by the way, was on the cross for six hours. Whilst this was happening, whilst Jesus was on the the cross, Matthew records, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Now, Josephus tells us that this was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. It was woven, Josephus says, as thick as the span of a man's hand. I mean, it's incredible that this thing could have torn at all, but to have torn from the top to the bottom, the estimated weight was apparently around about five tons. Just an incredibly heavy piece of cloth, a piece of material. This temple veil. Josephus said that 
Horses tied to each side couldn't pull it apart. And yet, miraculously, this veil is torn. And you know, there's something in that. You know, that, that's the record we have from Josephus. We've no reason to doubt it. And a lot of things Josephus tells us elsewhere we can verify and, and prove. But the interesting thing is, it just shows how inaccessible the holy place was. And Christ dying on that cross did the impossible. He made a way for us to enter into the holy place. That brings it home when you look at these details. Now, this occurs at 3 p.m., just as the evening sacrifice would be commencing in the temple. Many priests would have been there officiating. Acts confirms that many priests came to faith as a result of these things. Can you imagine being in the temple at this point, and suddenly this big veil behind you just rips from top to bottom? At the time, I'd also recalled an earthquake in Jerusalem about 40 years before the temple was destroyed, which replaced it just about this time, which is again in accord with what we're told in the Gospels. And we're told in verse 52, And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. I mean, this was such an incredible series of events and, and a time. Now, it would be impossible for Matthew to write that down and circulate it if it didn't happen. I mean, just think back to that little story we started with. For Matthew to write that down, easily somebody could have gone, oh, Matthew, that's stupid, that didn't happen. There's no way Matthew's gospel could have circulated and people would have bothered copying it if he'd have put things down that couldn't have been verified. It's just simply been discredited. But we still have, and we do have Matthew's account. On the hill at Calvary, we read there, Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. I mean, darkness had come over the land. It was supernaturally dark for three hours. I don't know if any of you remember, some years ago we had an eclipse. It was really quite eerie because all of a sudden the birds stopped singing. Everything is quiet. It's really strange. I remember I was in Kent at the time and we knew it was coming and we kind of went out. And it, wasn't, it wasn't a complete eclipse, but it was pretty dark. It was really strange. Well, imagine that for three hours. It really was an incredible moment. And when the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. Matthew records this for us. Now, some victims of crucifixion, as I'm sure you're aware, could last days. The longest recorded one was 13 days before they finally died on the cross. The shortest was 32 hours that we have record of. So typically, the crucifixion process would take a little while. But when Joseph Arimathea goes to Pilate and says, can I have the body of Jesus? Pilate's surprised that Jesus is already dead. But of course, to fulfill that prophecy, then not a bone of Jesus was broken. That spear is placed in Jesus' side and blood and water come out. Joseph of Arimathea is a very interesting character because he was a very wealthy man, notably wealthy. He was held in very high regard by the Jews, by the Romans at that time. He's actually called in Mark's gospel, in Mark 15, 43, honorable counselor. Only 14 men have that title in the history of the nation. 
he and Nicodemus are granted by Pilate Jesus' body. That gives you some idea of his standing. That he could just walk up to Pilate, ask for this, and then Pilate say, yeah, okay. That wouldn't happen to any ordinary individual. But this very act would cause both of them, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, to be excommunicated and lose their their office, their public office. As they take Jesus, they anoint him, and they put him in Joseph's tomb. And of course we have Joseph's tomb, we know which one it was, and that's a picture of it. Some of you may have been to Israel and you may have been there, you may have seen it. It was first, um, well I say first, it was kind of uh, rediscovered by General Gordon. When they, when General Gordon discovered it, before they let anyone else in, they took scrapings from the place and they found no evidence of human decomposition. In other words, no corpse had been left to decay in that tomb. On the door there is the sign that says he's not here, he's risen. Just looking at the topology of the, this area, Mount Moriah as it's known, certainly as it was known to Abraham, is part of a, a ridge system where Jerusalem is built and going up to the peak. You've got Mount Zion on the west side and on the east the Mount of Olives and then that kind of ridge system that runs up through. You've got the Kidron Valley again on the east side and the Taropian Valley on the west, and then to the south is the Hinnom Valley, Valley of Hinnom. <clears throat> Salem is the old town of Jerusalem as it was before David came and, and conquered and took it. At the top there, you've got the threshing floor of Aruna, the place where that plague was stopped when David was king. And then finally, the peak, the Akedaz, known by the Jews, the place where Abraham would have offered up Isaac and Golgotha, as we know, at Calvary, right at the very top. Just to zoom in at the, the top section again, again, the Temple Mount you see there, the temple was built on that threshing floor of Ornon or Aruna, and then again that bit at the top. Interestingly, if you lay a, a map from the air, an aerial view of that over the top, you see it's exactly the right place. Everything fits perfectly from the Temple Mount up to Golgotha at the top. And if you look in the back of your Bibles, you'll find that there's normally a map which again fits perfectly with these details. There's no question of the location of these things. But also notice that we've got a city wall that's going around the outside. And that's no coincidence because back in Leviticus, we're told there that, we read this last week, that that which is being offered was to be carried forth without the camp. Burn him on the wood was the instruction. Of course, Jesus was judged for our sin on the cross outside of the camp. And the writer of the Hebrews makes reference to that. It says, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Well, that leads us on to the next day in the Jewish calendar. <clears throat> that was the high Sabbath the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's on this day that we read, the next day that followed the day of preparation, this is the high Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Now they're getting a bit concerned. Because of all these events. Again, you know, you've got to think of the, the, the darkness of the earthquake. With the temple veiled turning in two. And so they go to Pilate now and say, Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. They're terrified of what might happen. And Pilate said unto them, almost tongue in cheek, You have a watch. Okay, you have your guard. 
Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. Do whatever you think you need to do. It's interesting because I really think that by this point, Pilate is starting to realize. We'll talk when we conclude in a couple of weeks some of the things that Pilate said. But so they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. I'm going to come back to that briefly in a moment. That leads us on to the Saturday Sabbath. Again, no work permitted. The women couldn't yet go to the tomb to anoint the body. And so they just wait until the Sabbath is completed. And then we're going to pick this up on the morning of the resurrection in Mark's account. And we read, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices. They might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? In Matthew's account. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Now this is as the women are, are getting closer. They don't know they necessarily see this. but And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. We're going to talk about this in just a moment. I don't think the women are here yet. They're not seeing this. So how do we have this record? We'll come back to that. Mark says, when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. So they, the, the women, by the way, didn't know the, the garb were there. That was something that happened, that they weren't privy to that information. But when they get there, they find that the stone has been rolled away. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear you not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And in Luke's account, we're told, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. In Mark, and entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in the long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way and tell his disciples and Peter. Make a note of that that he goes before you into Galilee. There you shall see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Luke tells us, And it came to pass that they were much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Notice what Luke tells us. Not two angels. We've already seen the angels. But two men stood by them in shining garments garments and as they were afraid they bowed down their faces to the earth and they said unto them why seek you the living among the dead he is not here he is risen remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in galilee these two men have got some knowledge of the conversations that have been going on and they've come to bear witness to this event saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And returned from the sepulchre and told all these things unto the eleven, Judas, not there of course, and to the rest. Now that rest is important because amongst that rest there would have been Matthias and many others that have been witnesses of these things. Well, in John's Gospel we then read, Then she, speaking of Mary, runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. John doesn't use his own name here, but speaking of John whom Jesus loved, there's a clear reference, and said unto them, they've taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. 
It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. But John then carries on and says, Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together. And again, John being relatively humble here, says, and the other disciple did outrun Peter. Just happens to put that in. He's a little bit fitter, maybe a bit younger than Peter. Peter gets there, <laughs> turning out of breath, you know. It's a marathon today. I was going to do it, but obviously had to be here, so I couldn't. Um, you know, it just, John makes that point that he gets there first, but waits. Because we're told that Peter came, came, uh, came to first the sepulchre, and he's stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes laying, yet went he not in. So John doesn't go in. Why? Because he doesn't want to be defiled, because it's the time of the feast of the celebration. He was still a Jew. He was still expecting to, to celebrate as the rest of the Jews would have been. But Peter, you remember, had denied Jesus three times. Peter's whole world had been turned upside down. He really did not care about being defiled. Then came Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeing the linen clothes lying and the napkin that was about his head. Not laying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Wrapped together and placed. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulchre. So John then thinks, well, Peter's going on. Oh, it goes well. And saw and believed. But don't mistake that. They don't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead they believe that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Okay, because it's not until a little bit later. For as yet they knew not the scriptures, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. So seemingly Mary's travelled back. And seeing two angels in white sitting the one at the head and the other at the foot where the body of Jesus had lain on this piece of rock, this rectangular piece of rock, and we have an angel one end and an angel the other end with the blood of Christ in the center. Doesn't that make you think of the mercy seat with an angel either end? This is, this is the fulfillment of it. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had... Thus said she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him, hence tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And as we said earlier, just in that instant, Jesus said unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master, in a split second, all that despondency and despair turned into a joy that we can't, or we can imagine, because we know it ourselves. That joy of seeing the risen Jesus. And we may not yet have seen him with our eyes, but we know he's alive. And Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. And as they went to his disciples to, uh, to tell his disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said unto them, Be not afraid, go and tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Mary Magdalene, we told in John's Gospel, came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things unto her. All right, I just want to give you a breakdown then of what we've seen here. So the women of the first to arrive at the guarded tomb. 
Now this is the morning after the Sabbath. This is the first opportunity they could have got there. An angel has descended, has moved the stone away. The guards are frozen in fear because of this. But the women then are encouraged to look inside. Maybe that the guards had already fled. But Jesus' body's not there. Another angel reminds them what Jesus said. And then to go and tell his disciples and Peter. Just want to pick on that point because we mentioned it briefly as we're going through that. You remember back in John 18, the damsel that kept the door said unto Peter, Are now not one of this man's disciples? And he said, I am not. Peter made this statement, I am not one of Jesus' disciples. And three times he reiterated it. What was it that Jesus said? For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. Well, at the end of John's gospel, you'll find that three times Jesus asked Peter the same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Jesus gently restores Peter. You know, even Peter's denial of Jesus was not more powerful than the grace that was shown to him. So at this point, Peter is kind of cast out from amongst the disciples. He's not counted as one of the disciples by the text itself. And yet then he's brought back in. We go on. The women then flee from the tomb, again, because of the whole experience, they're confused, and also because of the guards, again, whether they were there or not. But the guards, though, we do know, go to the high priest and report back, and they head back to where the ladies, head back to where the disciples were. But as they leave, they encounter these two men, and Dr. Luke specifically tells us that they were men. Who were they? Why were they there? Well, again, two is the number of witness in Scripture which is interesting in itself. But the fact is, that's exactly what they were doing. They were giving a testimony to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. And do you remember what we saw? Mount Hermon, the Mount of Transfiguration. Behold, they talked with him two men, Luke says, which were Moses and Elijah. And what was it they were discussing? They were discussing the events that were going to be taking place in Jerusalem, specifically his decease. I think it's very interesting. I'm not going to make doctrine of this, but I would argue the case that these two men were Moses and Elijah. I'm not surprised the women didn't recognize and there was so much going on that morning. But I believe that they had been specifically asked to come and to bear record of the resurrection itself. You'll find these two men also appear in the book of Acts at the Ascension. And these two men also appear, I believe, in the book of Revelation. Also to bear witness to the fact that Jesus truly is risen. So Mary, again, as we've seen, being much younger, arrives back first than the other women, and Peter and John go to investigate. Again, it was potentially a dangerous mission. What about the guards? Were they still around? What was going to happen to them? John tells us, of course, as we've seen, that he can run faster than Peter and arrives first, seeing the grave clothes. Peter arrives, goes straight in. And again, not concerned about defilement, as we said. He's got nothing left to lose at this point. And Peter notices, and John records that the napkin was left there. Is that important? Is it significant? Well, I think it is because Jewish tradition has it that if a somebody, the master of the house, was eating a meal and they'd finished, they would get up from the table, they'd get their napkin, they'd screw it up and they'd just throw it onto the table and they'd walk off. And the servant would then know that it's time to clear the table. But if the napkin was neatly folded and placed, it was a sign that the master of the house was coming back again. And as they walk into the tomb, they see this napkin folded, saying to them, I'm coming back. Jesus then reveals himself to Mary as we've seen. Again, nothing had changed, as we said, except Mary's perception between those two sides of that, that, that moment. But then Jesus meets the other women en route, bids them to hurry and tell the rest that he'll meet them in Galilee. Why hurry? 
Well, because even now there was a rumor that was starting to circulate in Jerusalem. And we read in Matthew 28, verse 11, Behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And then when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were told. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So these soldiers come back. But notice again, how do we get this record? How do we get the, the details of this meeting that takes place? I'll just talk briefly about this, this guard. This watch was a royal Roman guard made up of typically 16 highly trained Roman soldiers. Each would have a spear, a short sword, and a dagger. Each man also had five javelins inside a curved shield. Their primary weapon, however, from records that we have, was typically a sling. And they were trained to hit a target 70 feet away. These were like the elite forces of the day. If a commanding officer came and found just one of those guards asleep, all 16 men in the guard would be killed. That's a sure way of making sure you don't fall asleep on the job, isn't it? So if one of them fell asleep, all the other guards would set their tunic on fire. As, a, as Just again, a little helper, just to, to stay awake when you're doing your job. In 390 AD, as Rome was beginning to fall apart, uh, then Caesar commanded uh, Flavus uh, Veratus Ronitus, I think that's his name, his historian anyway, um, to search the archives for military and tactical inspiration. Now, as a result, they found the details of this elite unit and they reconstructed this elite unit again to be used in battle. Well, the tomb, as we know, was already sealed, either with wax or with clay. And no doubt the seal of Rome had been placed upon that. Ropes have also been put across the stone with, again, the seal of Rome right in the center. Anyone that broke the seal, the punishment was to be crucified upside down. And if they couldn't catch you, they'd crucify upside down every man, woman, and child in your village. This is what this guard would do for anybody that tried to to break a seal of Rome. Believe me, that tomb really was sealed and secure. We read that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought these spices, as we've seen. They come early and they're asking who is going to roll the stone. Again, at that point, as I said already, they didn't know that God were there. And this earthquake occurs, and this angel descends, and we're told that the keepers did shake. But the question really is, how do we know this? Whose eyewitness testimony is this? Well, we've got an inside story here. Because in Israel, remember, there were tax collectors who would stay in their office and do the paperwork. That was one group. But there were others who would go out and about and collect taxes from the public. They were called publicans. That was the role of their job. They publicly went out and collected taxes. Matthew was of that latter category. Now, as a servant of Rome, he'd always have a Roman soldier with him wherever he went. With, again, his shield and his spear to signify the authority of Rome. Matthew is the only gospel writer to tell us what happened at the tomb. That the angel came down and rolled the stone away. And what happened in the discussion with Pilate. And the soldiers didn't go to Pilate when they fled the tomb, but to the priests. And the priests paid the soldiers to keep quiet. Again now, when they were going, behold, some of the 
watch came into the city and showed the chief priest the things that were done. We just looked at this a moment ago. And this buy-off is done here. So we're told they took the money, as they were told, and saying, and the saying that's commonly reported, saying that the disciples had come and stolen away the body. But is that really likely? It's impossible, given the nature of this armed guard, this, this, this military force that was present there. You see, you have to imagine these 16 Roman guards around this sealed tomb. Each of them were under a sentence of death if anything went wrong. But seemingly Matthew had known some of these individuals and had got the information and hence records it in his gospel account. And that brings us to where we're going to conclude now on that Sunday evening, which would have been for us Easter last Sunday, it would have been as it were this evening as they met together in that upper room. And we read, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week then, when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And notice that they were there for fear of the Jews. Now this is on the Resurrection Sunday, the day of the Resurrection itself. Who was missing? Who was it that wasn't there? Thomas. What happened on that first occasion? Well, Jesus breathed on them, as you remember. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hand and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive you the Holy Ghost. It's at that point the disciples become born again. That's the first moment. That's the first time. It has to be after the resurrection. Jesus breathes on, they receive the Holy Spirit. But Thomas is not there. And even though 10 of his best friends and all the others that were there would have told him, we've seen Jesus, he's alive. He still doesn't believe it. You see, people in this world will still choose not to believe, regardless of the evidence, regardless of the fact, because you need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us this spiritual understanding and insight. Spiritual things are discerned spiritually, but the natural man, we're told by Paul, doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. And it's that week later, as I said, what would be today, that Jesus then appears again, and the second time, Thomas is there. And on that occasion, Thomas is able to touch Jesus and to see, and he believes. We're going to pick it up from there in two weeks' time. I hope that's blessed you. I hope it's encouraged you. There's so many things we start to see as it all comes together. And we just see the incredible design of all that God was doing so much. Let's just bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true from the beginning. And Lord, we need not doubt any of the, the record that has been passed down to us. But Lord, it is a true record of true historical events. And Lord, these things have been recorded for our learning and our admonition, Lord, as your word says, upon whom the ends of the world will come. Oh Lord, we live in these days knowing that it won't be long before you return again to this earth to set up your throne, to establish your kingdom. Lord, help us to be witnesses. Lord, to share with others the reality that we are worshipping and serving a risen saviour. And Lord, we just thank you for these things. We thank you for your word. Lord, may we be strengthened and encouraged by it. Lord, be with us as we go from here today and keep us close to you. And Lord, ever bearing witness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you.